Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Have you ever had someone be very generous to you? Maybe to the point where you felt embarrassed by their generosity? Maybe you were given a gift that was just too generous? Something which you were uncomfortable taking? A lot of times it's easier to be on the side of the giver in those situations, you know, than to be the receiver. We like to think, I think, that we pay our own way, and nobody wants to receive charity, you know. One thing that you learn about God when you read the Bible is with Him, there's no paying your own way. If you're going to come to Him, you're going to have to do it on His terms, or not at all. And that means you can't earn your way. You have to receive it from Him as a gift. I would submit to you this morning that I think that is the primary point of the last two verses of Psalm 23. And as usual, I'm going to have to shatter some conventional wisdom along the way in order to get us to see what it's really about. Let's just pray, though, as we begin. We'll ask the Lord's help uh, as we study these verses. But pray with me again. Lord, we thank you for your promise promise that you will uh, teach us the truth, that your spirit will enlighten our eyes to understand the word of God. We claim that promise this morning, that we need your help. We need your help to see not just what we're familiar with, but to see what you're really saying. More importantly, Lord, we need your help to believe what you're saying, to conform our life to the truth principles that are in your word to act on what we say we believe so i pray this morning that you would help us as we look at psalm 23 and we look at the last verses lord i pray that you would help us to see what the psalmist is saying and understand ultimately what this reveals about you and about us lord i pray that you would just give us hearts of faith, believe, and then, Lord, help us to live in accordance with that. Use me this morning as your instrument, Lord, that I wouldn't obstruct your word, 
and instead would be able to speak it clearly that you might be glorified and magnified in all things. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to take a quick look back at the entire psalm that we've been studying for the last few weeks. And, and, and as you look at Psalm 23 and kind of get an overview, a, a, a large picture, if you will, I think David is really presenting us in this psalm with three key truths about, about the Lord. Okay. And at the same time, there are three appropriate responses that we should have when we learn these things about God. Okay. Well, what are the three things? Well, first of all, in the first three verses, he presents us with this principle, that our shepherd provides for us. Okay. Well, if that's true and our shepherd provides for us, then what should our response be? Anybody remember? It only goes back three weeks. Anybody remember? If God provides for us, if He's our shepherd faithfully providing for us, what should our response be? We should be content, He said. The Lord is my shepherd. If that's true, I shall not want. See, the first statement, by the way, you can look at Psalm 23 and see it spelled out. There are three statements that David makes. The first one is, I shall not want. Okay? The second principle we found in verse 4, we looked at this last week, our shepherd protects us. Okay? So he provides for us, and he protects us. If he protects us, then what should our response be? Here's a hint. Look for the I will section of verse 4. Right. We should not be afraid. If our Lord protects us, if our shepherd protects us, then we should not fear. Now that's when we come to the last two verses. And what, is he, what do these verses present us with? They present us with a shepherd who pursues us. Our shepherd pursues us. And if he pursues us, what should we do in response? Now let me help you out with this one. We should worship him. We should worship him. That's what David is telling us. So we have this song. Our Lord, our shepherd, provides for us. He protects us. He pursues us. And what do we do in response? We should be content. We should be without fear. And we should worship Him. This is Psalm 23. That's a little bit different, by the way, than the way we normally take Psalm 23. Again, we've talked about this. Sometimes these passages of Scripture become so familiar to us that our brains just go into neutral when we read them and we don't ever think about what they're actually saying. We never question it. Now, last week I pointed out, as we're going through the psalm, that there's a shift in language when we get to verse 4. Okay? The first three verses, it's the Lord, He, His, right? Speaking of him in the third person, it's not a direct address. David is talking about God. Then he comes to verse 4 and it changes. Now he's talking to God in the second person. This is a direct address. He says, if I, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Your rod, your staff comfort me. 
Well, this same language continues in verse 5. He continues to speak to the Lord in verse 5. And then verse 6, he actually goes back into the third person speaking of the Lord. Verse 6 is really kind of a conclusion of the psalm. But there is something else that changes here. There's a shift that takes place between verse 4 and verse 5. And this time, it's not a shift of language, it's a shift of image. The metaphor that David is using changes here. Now, some people will argue this, so I'm not going to like make this a big deal, but I don't think that the shepherd and sheep image continues for all six verses. I think David uses the image of the shepherd and the sheep in the first four verses. But verse 5, I think the image changes. The metaphor changes here. Verse 5, I think the image that David uses here is a king entertaining his guests and showing great favor to them. I think it's consistent to do this, by the way. Remember I said at the very beginning in verse 1, when we talked about the Lord is my shepherd, and I said that it's not injustice or it's not a disservice to call God the shepherd. It's not an insult. Because to speak of a shepherd in, in, in ancient times, that term or the idea of a shepherd was often applied to kings. Kings were described as shepherds of their people. And so I think it's consistent for David to talk about the shepherd or the sheep and then to transition immediately from that to speaking of the king with his subjects. Because there's so much overlap between those two things. And so if I were going to say this in a sentence and summarize everything today in a sentence, I would say it this way. The Lord pursues us with his mercy to forgive and his grace to bless us abundantly. The Lord pursues us with his mercy to forgive and his grace to bless us abundantly. Just look at verses 5 and 6 here. Notice what David says. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. In 1859, John Stevenson wrote about these verses, and he said, Every true believer is the guest of God. He enters into his house by express desire. He draws near to his presence by previous invitation. The King of Heaven welcomes every believing soul to sit down at his royal table. He has furnished it with the abundance of his goodness and never sends anyone empty away. That is the image that we have in view here. Notice what he's saying here in verse 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. This is the image here. The Lord is the king who invites his guests to come in and to share in his abundance. And so I think verse 5 is telling us something very, very important. It tells us this, that God gives his grace in abundance. God gives his grace in abundance. This is, the, this is what the king does here. The king invites his 
his guests to come in and he prepares a table. This is not a hasty, uh, this is not a hasty, uh, uh, you know, bite of, grabbing a bite of food, you know, uh, like the soldiers on the battlefield, you know, when there's a lull in the action and they just quick grab a bite of food. This is a table that is prepared, a table that is spread out. Okay. The, the idea here is that this is intentional. Okay. It's planned out. It's, 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 it's designed, Okay. There's, a, there's the idea here that, that we're talking here about something that is not hurried. Okay. It's not rushed at all, right? When David says that you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, he's saying, Lord, you give me this incredible blessing, this incredible uh, demonstration of your favor, your grace. Okay. And it's not hurried it's not rushed you see when a king invites you to the banquet and he welcomes you in it's it, we're not talking about you know like a 30 minute affair right i mean when he plans a banquet we're talking about this is an entire evening this is a, this is not a hurried thing and when you come in and you sit down at his table right, he expects you to come in and to sit down and to relax and enjoy his hospitality. That's what's in view here. Lord, you prepare a table before me. You lay it out. You set it with care and concern for all of the details. You know? I mean, I imagine he's picturing here, you know, the like the, the 18 different forks and the ones you don't know how to use and you don't know what they're for and all that stuff, you know. I learned that once upon a time. All this stuff. This table is, is, is laid out. That's the picture here. I do think it's interesting, though, that he says that this table is in the presence of my enemies. I, I think what's probably in view here is some sort of a, a victory celebration. Okay. This is a victory celebration. This is the Lord who welcomes His warriors in to sit around His table and they celebrate the victory okay, that they have just had. This is a celebration. God Preparing the celebration, preparing the table for his people. I do think it's also uh, worth noting here. He doesn't say you prepare a table before me in the absence of my enemies. Okay. He says you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. I think, that's, I think that's important for us to, to know. And so I have another point I want to say. I think this is true. That what he's talking here is about peace. He's talking here about having peace. You see, this table that is prepared, this table is prepared, yes, it's in the presence of his enemies, but this is a peaceful thing. This is a peaceful banquet. That's part of what the provision of the king offers. He guarantees 
His guests will enjoy peace and safety while they're at his table. And so he gives peace even among our enemies. And that's what I think he's, he's suggesting here. This is peaceful. One author said it this way, Though God has chosen to give us a table in the presence of our enemies, he has also sent us forth with his mighty power to prepare it. Again, this is not, uh, you know, the soldiers on the battlefield being forced to just grab a quick bite in between, you know, melees. Sit down. Enjoy the banquet that's prepared for you in peace. So he gives us peace even among our enemies. You know, everybody wants peace. Everybody wants peace. If you talk to, uh, I did some reading on this this week, but if you talk to, uh, you know, a Buddhist, they'll tell you that, that you can have peace in the middle of turmoil because turmoil is not real. Because it's not really real. It's just, it's just imaginary. It's, it's, it's a product of a, a wrong understanding of the way the world is. All you have to do is correct your thinking about it. You'll realize it's an illusion and you'll be able to have tranquility even in the midst of turmoil. I, did, uh, I came across um, an article written by a couple of yoga teachers and spiritualists um, who are, are, are big friends with Oprah Winfrey and she, you know, I think supports a lot of their teaching and they said something about that, that in order to find peace, all you have to do each day is you just got to find one spot in the day, one part of your day where you can just get away from the turmoil and have peace and then that will see you through those times of difficulty. What they're saying is all you have to do is escape. You just got to escape the turmoil for a little while. Even if it's just a few moments, escape the turmoil. That's how you'll find peace. Well, this says he prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. I would submit to you the enemies are not illusions. The turmoil is not an illusion. And we don't have to escape it even for a moment to find peace. Because he prepares a table before us in the presence of our enemies. See, he gives us peace, not in the absence, but in the presence of our enemies. Interestingly enough, back in 1983, Psychology Today asked a question, interesting question. If you could push a button and thereby eliminate any person with no repercussions to yourself, would you do it? That's an interesting question. 60% of the people who were polled said yes. But one man suggested an even better question. He said, if such a device were invented, would anyone live to tell about it? See, the problem is we always want peace by eliminating the the problems, by eliminating the conflicts, by eliminating the enemies. Okay. And there's some wisdom in that, right? We understand that. Sometimes, you know, in, a, in, in this world, in this life, not speaking from a spiritual perspective so much, but speaking from a, 
from a, a human perspective, in this world, sometimes we have to fight our enemies in order to find peace. Sometimes we have to defeat them. And they have to be destroyed if we're going to have peace. But when it comes to us understanding our relationship with the Lord and what God is trying to do in us and for us, we need to understand He offers us peace not by eliminating every enemy. He doesn't do that. In fact, if you listen to what Jesus said, when we become followers of Him, we tend to gain enemies. <laughs> we get new ones that didn't exist before. Jesus said, if the world hates you, don't be surprised. They hated me first. Okay. So if we follow him, listen, enemies are kind of come with the territory. Conflict and, and turmoil and difficulty. But the psalmist says here, Lord, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You grant me peace. Okay. You grant me peace. Not by escaping the enemies. This is something God gives. Okay. This table that's prepared, this is... Peace. Peace that he gives us even among our enemies. But there's more than just that, more than just peace. And this is consistent with the view, with the metaphor of the banquet. Listen, the king invites you to a banquet. He wants you to sit down. It's going to be a peace. It's going to be a time of peace. That's guaranteed. But there's more to it than that. Stuart Perone said this way, the king lavishes his bounty in rich provision for his guests. See, if the king invites you to come to a banquet, okay, what could you expect when you show up? Are you going to show up and see, you know, just plain, rough accommodations? You're going to show up and you're going to see yourself in and find a place to sit down? Yeah. You're going to show up and, you know, uh, there's not going to be any offering of anything to make you comfortable? No. See, when the king invites you in, he wants you to enjoy the bounty of his hospitality. He wants you to enjoy the, the abundance. He lavishes on his guests. Okay. That's what David describes here. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And then the very next thing, you anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. That expression, you anoint my head with oil, is really, really fascinating. It, it literally means, uh, it, it, it literally means you make fat my fatness. That's a nice way to say it, right? You make fat my fatness. Hmm. Not sure that that's so culturally relevant for us today, right? We probably wouldn't put it that way. Because in our minds, in our minds, fatness is not really a, a positive thing, okay? But we have to understand, and we have to, we have to put ourselves back in David's shoes as David writes this, Lord, you, you give me abundance of good things. Oil poured on the head. This is the idea here. The, you overflow. You pour out your blessings in an abundant way. Anoint my head with oil. It was customary in that ancient cultures when you would have guests over to your home and you would have a, a meal that you would have a servant at the door to meet them when they came in. One of the things that servant would do is he would anoint them with oil 
or some sort of a, a grease or butter that would be seasoned with, with spices, with perfumes. Okay. Put it on your head. Well, one reason for that is that the oil on the head feels good. It's a comfort. It smells good. That's a pleasant thing, especially for people who've been out walking in dusty streets and people who don't have running water in their homes and showers and those kind of things on a continually regular basis. It's helpful when you're going to sit down at the table to do that. So they would anoint their guests. Okay. It smells good. feels good. It's comforting. This is the expression here. You anoint my head with oil. Lord, you, you meet my external need of comfort. Okay. You provide comfort for me. I invite you to come and sit at my table and enjoy peace. But that's not all. Because a good host must make his guests comfortable. That's the idea here. But it's in an abundant way. You make fat my fatness. It's, it's, it's abundant, okay? It's overflowing. It's more than we need. Okay. This is not an everyday kind of, a, of occurrence, is it? No, the king has a, has a banquet and he invites people to come and these guests receive something unique. Okay. Well, here's how I put it in the notes, you know, that, but I think this is important. He is generous. This is talking about the generosity of the king. He's generous to the point of overflowing. That's what he says in the very next phrase. My cup overflows. My cup runs over. Listen, you're the king and you invite people to come to your, to your banquet and you want to celebrate with them. And so you offer this banquet and the table that's prepared. And when they come in the door, you make sure that you care for their needs and make sure that they are comfortable and you go the, you know, the extra mile. It's all those little things that make it significant, make it, you know, but just think, then your guests are seated around the table and they're eating and they're drinking and they're enjoying themselves. And the wine runs out. Now what are you going to do? Kind of hard to have a party when you run out of food. Kind of hard to have a party when you run out. When it's not abundant. David says, no, my cup overflows. Okay. It doesn't run out. There is no shortage of goodness here. Wine here, he's using this as a metaphor to describe the goodness and the abundance of food. Okay. Good food. Again, there's the external comfort met by the anointing with oil, and here's the internal comfort. Here's, you know, supplying you with good food. So here's what he's saying. God, when you supply, when you meet my needs, you overflow my cup. It never runs short. It's always abundant. You're generous to the point of overflowing. Lord, when you reach down and you pour out your grace on your people, it's always more than we need. It's always over and above. I do think it's interesting, by the way, that the first miracle that Jesus ever performed, what was the, did anybody remember what the first miracle was that Jesus performed? Yeah, he turned the water into wine. Where at? At a wedding. Okay, well, the wedding was a big celebration, week-long celebration, seven days, okay? You invite all your family and friends, everybody you know, they all come over to your house, have a big celebration for a week. Okay. That's a lot of food, 
That's a lot of wine. What happens? They run out. What an embarrassment, right? What an embarrassment to the host when his guests are there and it turns out he didn't make enough provision. You know, Mary gets Jesus and says, you got to do something about this. Jesus says, fine. Bring me those water pots. Fill them up with water. Huge water pots. Fill them up with water. Now dip in. You dip in and it's wine. What amazes me about this is that what David describes here in this psalm, metaphorically, right? David is saying, hey, when, Lord, when you provide, you provide in abundance. It overflows my cup. Okay. David is saying this in a metaphor, but we come to Jesus, and Jesus does it literally. See, what's metaphorically true in this case is literally true when Jesus Christ comes. Right? He turns water into wine. So that that banquet is able to go on and the cup overflows. Okay, That's the idea. The cup is overflowing. It's, it's the abundance of God's goodness. His generosity. See, when He gives grace, He gives it abundantly. And this is taught through Scripture all over the place. God's grace is abundant. Let me just suggest to you one passage of Scripture. You can keep your hand in Psalm 23 if you want. But we're going to go to the book of Romans chapter 8. We were there a little bit earlier. What this reminds me of, as I was reading it this week and thinking about this, the abundance of God's grace, His generosity toward us. Just how generous is God with His people? Well, look at what he says, what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, and, and look at right there starting in verse 31. What shall we then say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? You know what Paul is saying? He's saying, listen, God, God saw our condition. Our condition was a condition of need, right? Desperate, bound in sin, lost, spiritually dead. He saw our condition of need, and he met our need. That's a good thing, right? He met our need. Isn't it good to have your needs met? It is. But does he only meet our need and no more? Well, God meets the need, and then that's it. Paul is saying no. Paul is saying that if God already gave his son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins so that we could be forgiven, so our need could be met. If he's already done that, how will he withhold from us anything else? How could he say no to anything else when he's already said yes by sending Christ? What more could he possibly give? What more valuable thing could he give? I always say this when I when when we when when we first got Ruby as a puppy, I used to tell her, "There's a dollar amount on your head, and when it gets to that dollar amount, I'm done." Just want you to know that. We didn't really set a dollar amount, but 
the idea was, you know what? I mean, your dog, you're great. You know, I love having the dog. She's, she's great, pet and everything. But at some point, costs too much. It's just not worth it, you know? I'm so thankful God doesn't do that with us. That's what Paul's telling us in Romans chapter 8. God didn't say, well, you know what? <clears throat> you know, I already gave my son. Now you're really asking for something too much. What? What could be more valuable than what he's already given? See, See he's already poured out abundantly. Paul continues there in, in Romans 8. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. The truth is, when God provides, He doesn't just supply our needs. He is generous to the point of overflowing. We can say, Lord, You prepare a table before me. I have experienced Your overflowing, abundant grace. You provide peace in the midst of my enemies. You meet all of my needs. But more than that, you overflow. You provide more than I need because your generosity knows no bounds. This is the grace of God being poured out. And so Psalm 23 and verse 5 presents us with this view of the grace of God being given. And it's compared to a king king who graciously gives to his subjects. I said at the beginning of the message today that um, I asked the question, if you've ever received a gift that you felt was too generous, something that was too costly, something that was almost embarrassing to accept, because it was too much? I think that's the reason, well, one of the reasons maybe, why we struggle to accept the grace of God in Jesus Christ. I mean, I think this is one of the reasons why people who are not born again struggle with the message of the gospel. Because we come to them, we come to you, and we say, you know what, here's the deal. You're lost in sin. Scripture says it. There's none righteous, no, not one. You can't claim to be righteous and holy because Scripture tells us you're not. God says you're not. And the Bible also says that God is perfect and holy and righteous. And because He is, He cannot allow a sinner to come into fellowship with Him and to enjoy His presence. And so you as a sinner are cut off from God. But guess what? God knew that you would have no way of bridging the gap from where you are to where He is, and so He reached down for you. He sent His own 
son, his one and only son, to die in your place, to shed his blood so that God's holy and right, righteousness and justice could be satisfied. And all you must do, here's the thing, all you must do is admit that you really are a worthless sinner who cannot help yourself, who cannot do one little thing to boost yourself toward God. The analogy that I read this week, and pardon me, Kolakis, because you heard this on Thursday night, but we read it in our study, but the analogy that I heard this week is let's imagine we're on the edge of the Grand Canyon, the rim of the Grand Canyon. We're looking across to the other side. It's eight miles, by the way, from one side to the other. Okay. And for some reason, we're standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon, and we get the bright idea to jump across. Okay. And I say, hey, let's all run as fast as we can, and let's jump across. Okay. Would some of us go further than others? Sure. With different abilities, Different natural abilities, you know. Nikita and Greg would see who could out jump each other. Nikita would win by a land. It wouldn't even be close. Okay. <laughs> but here's the thing you got to remember. No matter how far we jumped, all of us would fall to our deaths in the canyon. Not a single one of us would reach the other side. You might make it further, right, than somebody else. A lot of good it would do you when you hit the bottom. Right? This is what this is what the truth is about us. See, this is what this verse, by the way, is. It, it forces us to confront this issue that we do not want to admit. We don't want to admit. I don't want to stand here and say, Lord, I'm not worth this. You see, when the king invites us to come and, and to enjoy a banquet at his table and sit down, we have to be willing first and foremost to admit, you know what, um, that's a great honor, but it's one I don't deserve. Because he's a king. Why would he ask me? Why would he want me to come and sit at his table? Okay. But when the king asks, it's a humbling thing, isn't it? to receive the invitation from the king and realize, whoa, the king wants me to sit at his table. He wants to give me from his private stock of food and drink. He wants to give me from his abundant blessings and provision. He wants to give those things to me. We're not talking about meeting needs here because none of us needs to sit down at the table with the king and enjoy his food. Our needs can be met much simpler than that. But when he pours out his, his provision, when he pours out his generous blessings, we have to, if we're going to receive that invitation, and if we're ever going to actually sit down at the king's table, we've got to come to grips with the fact that he's the king. And we don't deserve to sit at his table. Okay. And if we're ever going to receive the grace of God and Jesus Christ, we have to admit we have to come to grips with the fact that we are unworthy. 
that we don't deserve the abundance of his blessings poured out. We don't deserve to have our head anointed with oil and our cup running over. We don't even deserve to have our basic needs met. We're not worthy of him. That's why the gospel is so challenging because it is humbling. If you're going to receive Jesus Christ and you're going to receive his grace, you have to humble yourself before him. You have to realize that he is great, that his goodness is abundant. And we don't like to receive those kind of gifts. We don't like to receive a gift that's just too costly. We want to pay for it. We want to make sure that we pay our own way. We want to make sure that, that we're not a charity case. No, I'm sitting here at the king's table because I bring something to him. He needs me. No, he doesn't. If you're not there, he'll just find somebody else. He doesn't need you. See, but that's the problem we run into. God wants to give us his gracious, abundant blessings. He wants to pour out on us his blessings. And we resist him. Because we want to earn it. Because we want God to look at us and say, you know what? You deserve this. Because you're really something special. doesn't work that way. The Lord's blessing on us, His gracious gifts cannot be bought and paid for. In fact, if, if, if the king were to invite you to come to his table and he said, listen, I want you to come for a banquet and I want you to come and sit at my table. If you responded back and said, tell me how much it costs. Give me, I, I want to know how much the tickets cost. You'd be insulting the king's generosity. He invited you to come to the table. He invites you to partake of his abundant blessings. He wants to, he wants to pour out on you his generosity. And you're sitting here saying, what's it cost? I don't want that gift. I'm not a charity case. No, 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 I pay my own way. I earn my own way. I can earn my way to your table. And the king says, no, you can't. If that's the way you feel about it, you're not welcome. Because I want people who will understand. But this is a gift. If you pay for it, it's not generosity anymore. If you could earn it, then it's a business deal, you know? It's transaction. It's not a gift. It's not grace. And so we're presented in verse 5 with this image of the king and his table. And he goes on in verse 6 to say something that really is astounding. 
Surely, David says, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. That word follow, it means pursue. It means to chase after. David is saying, Lord, your goodness, your mercy, they're pursuing me, following after me my whole life. He's pursuing us. He's pursuing us with the goal and the means of fellowship. You say, why would God invite us to a banquet? Why would God offer us a table? Why would he prepare a table? Why would he invite us to enjoy his blessings and pour out his abundant blessings on us? Why would he do that? Because God wants something. He wants fellowship. He wants us to be into in a relationship with him. That's what he desires. He wants fellowship with us. And so he pursues us. The goal is fellowship, but it's more than just a goal. It's the means as well. His pursuit. He chases after us. Reminds me of a poem called The Hound of Heaven written by Francis Thompson, begins this way, I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind and in the midst of tears. I hid from him and under running laughter. Francis Thompson describes the Lord in pursuit of his soul. Each stanza of the poem ends with the Lord speaking to him as he's chasing him down, saying, essentially, you will not find satisfaction apart from me. At the end of the poem, he finally catches up with him. The hound of heaven catches up with him. And he says to him, I am him whom thou seekest. Francis Thompson understood I don't have time to go into his story. He understood from personal experience that we are prone to wander, prone to run away from God, that we resist the grace of God, that we, that we, we fear receiving the goodness of God in full. David, I think, is pointing to that here. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me. Pursue me. You'll run after me. Goodness, I think, is a description of the grace of God. He's already given us a picture of that in verse 5. Mercy is God's forgiveness. His love. He's talking here about his desire to bless us. God pursues us with the intention of blessing us. And we don't want to receive that blessing because it means we have to admit who and what we really are. And so we run. Would you ever run from the blessing of God? Would you ever run from His generosity? I think you do. I know I do. See, we run from the blessing of God. We run away from His goodness and His mercy when we choose to go our own way. When we choose the, the, the pleasure of sin for a season. 
when we determine, even as Christians, that we, that we want to be in control, that we want to pay our own way, that's when we run. But he runs after us. You see, his goodness and his mercy, they follow. They pursue us. Okay. This is what he does. David says, all the days of my life, listen, I can't get away from you, Lord. I can run, and I can run, and I can run, but you run after me. You follow me with blessing. You follow me with mercy, the desire to forgive. And isn't it good that he does? We may resist him, but he continues the Apostle Paul told, this, told Timothy something related to this. He said, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. Christian, understand that your Christian life is not determined by your faithfulness. It's determined by his faithfulness. And even if you are unfaithful, he will be faithful. His goodness, his mercy pursue you all the days of your life. But we need to understand, finally, that the love that God has for us, you know, we like to talk about the love of God as being unconditional, how God loves unconditionally. There's one author I've read who suggests that we should change the way we talk about that, that we should talk about the conditional love of God. He's not saying that God only loves us when we do good or that God's love is conditioned on our behavior. He's saying that God's love comes with a condition, with an intention, with an expectation. God loves us, and He expects that His love, His generosity that He pours out on us will produce an effect in us. And what is that effect? Well, John says it in this way, we love Him because he first loved us. We tend to look at that, I think, from our perspective. I love God because he loved me. But why did God love me? To make me love him. I'll give you a second to think about that. Okay. Your mind turned around here. Why did God love me? Why does he love us? Well, in part, he loves us so that we'll love him. That's what his love accomplishes in us. See, he chases after us. He pursues us. He pours out his blessings. Notice, notice the trend in verses 5 and 6 of Psalm 23. Everything is from the Lord. Everything is coming from the Lord to us. Okay. We're not offering anything to God. David concludes by saying, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I think we commonly assume that I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever means I'm going to go to heaven, right? Surely, goodness, mercy, follow me all the days of this life, and then the next one I'm going to be with the Lord. Good. No, I don't think that's what he's saying at all. He's saying, listen, God, his mercy, his goodness will pursue you all through this life because God wants to bring you into fellowship with him. 
He wants you to dwell in His house. The word dwell there is the same word that's used in verse 3 as restores. And it means to, to return. He wants you to return to His house over and over. He wants you to worship Him. He wants you to fellowship with Him. He wants you to love Him. That's what God is doing. That's what He's doing in your life right now. He is pouring out His grace, His blessings, His favor. He is offering forgiveness and mercy continually. And He will do it and He will pursue you with it. Because what He wants is He wants you to turn and enjoy sweet fellowship with Him. That's what God is doing in your life right now. He is trying to bring you into closer fellowship so you can say like David, I will dwell in his house. I will return to his house. Now, David may have been talking about the temple or the tabernacle, but I don't think we necessarily have to draw an analogy here and say, well, there you go. You need to be in church every Sunday, every Wednesday. That's our new rule, okay? Because you're going to fulfill this verse. No, what David is saying is, I want to be in his presence. I want to be with him all the time. Continually, I want to come back. I want to enjoy fellowship with the Lord. This is what he is offering. God pours out his grace like oil on your head, like wine overflowing your cup, abundantly, generously. He invites you to enter his presence. And guess what? He will pursue you with his grace and with his mercy. And so what do we do? We love him back. We worship him. We dwell in his house. That's what our life becomes. This is the life of a true follower of God. See, being with the Lord is central to it. Being with the Lord in fellowship with Him is the most important part of life for the one who has experienced the grace of God, the mercy of God. That's, that's not an easy thing all the time. We want to run from His grace and His mercy. We don't want to receive His love. But I have to ask you to consider this morning, how have you responded to the love of God? The New Testament tells us that God demonstrated His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He has gone out of His way to demonstrate love for you. How have you responded? Have you accepted his gift? Now, understand, accepting the gift of his love and his grace means humbling yourself before him. Because if you're going to accept the gift, this is an extravagant gift. This is way more than you could ever pay. You're going to have to, you're going to, have to humble yourself and admit that this is beyond you and above you, that you are unworthy of it. 
But I think it's clear from this psalm that that's what David did. He received the love of God. He responded to it by loving God in return and enjoying the fellowship that God wanted. But we can't receive the blessings of Psalm 23 if we refuse to respond to the love of God. He is the great shepherd and king. We're nothing but his sheep, his subjects. He doesn't owe us anything, but he gives us everything. Isn't it time that you turn to him and trust in him and receive the full measure of his grace?